0: And so we say, hurry, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come gather your bride. We're longing for that day of glory. We're longing to see you. Until then, we pray that you would keep us, O Lord, that you would strengthen us and that you would feed us by your word. O Lord, we pray that you would take Colossians 4, 7 and 9 and help us and strengthen us and direct us. Speak, O Lord, Your, your servants listen. Please speak in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you know this or not, but Pastor Matt is jealous of me. He is. He's jealous that I'm from North Carolina. You ever notice every time somebody mentions they're from North Carolina and I say something about North Carolina, he's like, oh, oh yeah, oh, there you go again, you know, North Carolina. Rolls his eyes, twists his necks, throws up his hands. It's It's jealousy. (laughs) So I'm not going to talk about North Carolina this morning. (laughs) This morning, I'm going to talk about a less popular state called Pennsylvania. (laughs) You may not know this, but Pastor Matt is from Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. And back when Matt was in his 40s in the, in the 1970s, <laughs> Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh specifically, was home to some of the best sports teams in the country, the Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Pirates. In the 1970s, the, the Steelers were the team of the decade. I mean, they, they dominated football with their steel curtain defense. And some of you, though you might not have been old enough to remember, you may even know some of those names from those days, Mean Joe Green. L.C. Greenwood, Jack Ham, Jack Tatum, Mel Blunt in the secondary. And they had a a pretty impressive offense, too. Terry Bradshaw, see, some of y'all just thought he was a sports commentator, but he was quarterback. Names like Franco Harris and Rocky Blyer, Lynn Swan, and John Stallworth at the wide receiver positions. They were hanging banners. In 1979, the Pittsburgh Pirates won the World Series in baseball. I think that's the last time they won a playoff game. Is it? It's close. They had outfielders like Omar Marino and Dave Parker. And infielders like Willie Pop Starjo. That was my favorite Pirate. I just loved the way he'd come to the plate and the way he would just kind of wind up with the bat before taking the pitch. And they had other great players on that Pirates team. And, And that year, the Pirates chose as their theme song. Anybody know Matt knows and, yeah? yeah. Sister Sledge, we, we are, are family. family. That's, That's exactly kind of right. right. We are family. Y'all know the songs. We are family. Hey, 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 I got all my sisters with me. Uh, uh, uh. We are family. Mm-hmm. Everybody. say Da, 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 Sister Sledge was also from Pennsylvania. They were from from Philadelphia. And in that way, the pirates cemented their brotherhood in what was one of the greatest seasons of franchise history. But it's not just the Pittsburgh pirates who are family, nor is it just the four biological sisters called Sister Sledge that's family. The persons who should sing, We are family with the most wonder and joy, is the Christian church. But well, that's what the Lord has made us. More than an organization, more than a volunteer or association, more than an RB group, we, beloved, are family. The main idea of this sermon is, is this if you're taking notes, this is one thought hanging over this sermon. It's the idea that we are family that truly transforms our relationships with one another and our witness in the world the idea that we people from all kinds of backgrounds are now one family in Christ the truth and the power of that is what transforms our relationships and what transforms our witness in the world and i want to suggest this morning that we hang our thoughts on three three points this is our outline christians are family because number 1 of our family ties our family ties Number two, our family concern, our family concern. And number three, our family business, our family business. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 and 9. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. This section of Colossians begins the, the final greetings of the letter. Uh, the Apostle Paul often concludes his letter with a long list, I should, I should say, say salutations. salutations, is that right? Grief, Grief, whatever, whatever closings. <laughs> he, he closes his letter with a long list of say hi to this person. Tell this person I said what's up. You know, let this other person know what happened. That's what we begin in verses 7 and 9. He's introducing in this section though, though he's closing the letter, he's introducing two people, Tychicus and Onesimus, who are carrying the letter itself to the church in Colossae. And in that way, he's writing a kind of short letter of recommendation, a short commendation of these two men to that church. Now, the notion of family ties, the first place we see that in this text, is just in that use of that family word, brother. Did you see it there? He calls Tychicus in verse 7, beloved brother. Onesimus in verse 9, faithful and Beloved brother, that's the most explicit way in which we get the family theme of these couple of verses. Obviously, brother is is family language, and, and really, when you think about it, it's a remarkable thing that the Christian church, right from the time of the apostles, began this habit of referring to each other as brother and sister. Right from the start, the Christian community saw itself not fundamentally as a club, but as a family. And they recognize that even in their greetings, some of us are from church traditions that maintain that habit, even to this day, of calling each other brother so-and-so and and, and sister so-and-so. That's brother Colin and that's sister Eli. It goes all the way back to the New Testament, all the way back to the apostles, all the way back to how the early church referred to one another. It's a good habit. It's a good thing to do. But we see also this idea of family, not just in the explicit language of brother, but did you notice also how Paul describes Onesimus down in verse 9 when he says he is one of you? That's the second clue that there's a kind of family idea in this text. Notice that one of you there means that Onesimus is ethnically and culturally and nationally a Colossian. That's where he's from. Like the people whom Paul is writing to, that's his hook. That's where he came from. And the interesting thing, now notice, in this simple reference, one of you, uh, Paul is not, if we can use our language today, he's not colorblind. Or better, ethnicity blind. He acknowledges Onesimus and the Colossian church's ethnic identity. Now, often when Paul and the Bible writers refer to ethnicity, they're thinking about it with a kind of missiological purpose in mind. They're thinking in terms of Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, that God has decided that people from every nation, tribe, and language will be gathered into his kingdom around his throne. That's not quite the way Paul is using it here, though that's never far from Paul's mind. He's just simply making an observation, a fact, about who the man is. Beloved, that's okay to do. We're so sensitive in our day and age that we, we wonder if it's even okay to say some, if somebody's black or white. Ooh, is that wrong? Well, not as a statement of fact. It certainly isn't. Now, there are bad ways to do that. Like the guy at my daughter's college. We dropped Eden off at college this weekend, and they had a mixer for children from sort of with third culture backgrounds. These might be kids who are Americans by birth, but they grew up overseas, and now they're coming back to the States for college. And so there were lots of missionary families and their children there, and, and then, you know, we, we show up being culturally appropriate for our culture about 15 minutes late, and, uh, <laughs> and trying to figure out where, where we're supposed to go. And uh, the lady directs us around the corner. We go around this corner in the library, and there's there's an older gentleman, white gentleman, sitting there typing on his computer, and he looks up, and he says, you must be looking for the third world meeting. And I said, "Um, yeah? He says, you got that look about you. And I kind of smiled. I said, oh, I look like I'm from the third world, huh? He said, oh, no, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. So there are clumsy ways of doing it. (laughs) But Paul here just makes a note that he's a Colossian. He is one of you. And when he does that, notice what he's trying to do there, even naturally with the church. He's trying to increase the Colossian church's solidarity and empathy with Onesimus. That's going to be important later. So we might call this natural family, or kinsmen according to the flesh, as Paul refers to it elsewhere. And so he's he's saying, hey, Colossians is... or or Onesimus is family to you, you Colossians. But notice something else. There's something far more profound. There's a second way in which Paul wants to sort of increase solidarity between Onesimus and and the Colossian church. He he wants to stress the fact that they're not just natural family, but, but he is, as it were, stressing that they are spiritual family as well. And we might infer that, if you allow me an argument from silence, by what Paul does not say when he introduces Onesimus. You may recognize the Onesimus, that name from another letter in the New Testament, Philemon. Onesimus was a runaway slave from Philemon. And Paul has met Onesimus while Paul was in prison, and Onesimus apparently has come to faith in the Lord. And now Paul has written another letter that they're carrying along with them, with this Colossian letter, to Philemon, instructing Philemon on how to regard Onesimus, this runaway slave, now Christian. But remember what Paul has said to the Colossians up in chapter 3, verse 11, before he comes down to, uh, to Onesimus. I think he, he might have been pastorally setting him up. Remember what he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, where he says in, in verses 9 and 10 that they have taken off the old man, they've put on a new man, Christ. And then he says in verse 11, Here there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That's the family, that's the spiritual family, the the Christian family. Paul's been preparing them now as he introduces Onesimus to confer on Onesimus not the shame of slavery, but the dignity of brotherhood. He says he's one of you. There's a dual meaning there. He's a Colossian, naturally, but he's a Christian, supernaturally. He's a part of your family. And this is why he writes to Philemon these words in verses 15 and 16 of Philemon. And he writes and he commends Onesimus back to him. And he commends Philemon to receive him. He says, perhaps this is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you for a while. That you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Philemon was a Colossian too. So this is your kinsman according to the flesh, but more importantly, this is your kinsman in the Lord. Receive him as a beloved brother. Don't receive him as a brother grudgingly, but take him in like you love him. Receive him as one of your your own. So So since both Onesimus and Philemon are believers in the Lord, they have through their common faith now been united as family. Their relationship is no longer defined by economic status, economic arrangement of slave and free, but by their spiritual arrangement in the family of God. They have one father, God, and they have become kinsmen in him. Not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. So without erasing or ignoring Onesimus' ethnic and class background, Paul gathers the entire church up into one family. A free man becomes brother to an enslaved man. A Jewish man becomes brother to a Gentile, Colossians. They both remain Jewish and Colossians, but they are adopted by God into his family. The ethnic family is swallowed up, as it were, in the spiritual family. That's what the church is. This is what Jesus does, beloved. Beloved. Jesus finds us in all of our different walks of life and all of our backgrounds and all of our variation and diversity, and he makes us one new man, one new spiritual ethnicity in him. And through faith in Jesus, who was crucified for our sins, who was buried and resurrected three days later from the grave for our righteousness, God adopts us as his children. He makes us his very own family. This is one of the sweetest facts of the Christian life. If you believe in Christ, you have been adopted. You are a spiritual orphan. Without God as your father, without an inheritance in heaven, and God through through Christ's blood has signed the papers to make you his own to bring you into his family and to give you an inheritance in the kingdom that will not perish. This is who we are, beloved. This is what the church is. Adopted sinners reconciled to God as our father. And if you're here this morning and you're recognizing that God's not your father, that you've not yet believed in Christ and you wonder about whether or not you can be adopted into this family, the answer is, yes. A thousand times yes. The The offer offer is made made to you you too, to to every creature, creature to repent of their sins, believe believe in in Jesus Christ as Lord crucified crucified for your sins, resurrected resurrected from the grave for your righteousness, and follow him in the obedience that comes from faith. And you will be following him right into the Father's household, right into his adopting love. I don't know what your earthly father was like. But God is infinitely better. No matter how bad your earthly father was or how good your earthly father is, to have God as your father, that's everything. Come to Jesus. Believe in him. You will be forgiven of your sins. You will be declared righteous with God. And you will be adopted into his family. And beloved, this is our great privilege, isn't it? to be that kind of family that receives people like Onesimus. And we're not likely to see many runaway slaves as a church, though we might. Slavery is still practiced. It's still real. We need to pray for its abolition. And if God is pleased to send us someone here who has escaped the the slave trade, whether it's the fisheries of West Africa or the, the sex trade around the world, may we be the kind of congregation that receives them as brothers and sisters. Not to shame, but to dignity. And Paul himself, when he writes this letter, he's writing from prison. I wonder if the Apostle Paul were alive today and got out of prison. I wonder if he'd be accepted in every church. Or if he might find it hard to fellowship in some churches because they find it hard to fellowship with someone with a criminal background. We are much more likely to... Encounter folks in our neighborhood who have had some kind of experience, some kind of contact with the criminal justice system, having having been jailed. And the question is, are we the kind of family who believes so radically in the grace of God, so radically in the transformation of God through the gospel, that the worst criminal would find a home with us if he is Christ, if she is Christ? I think that's a test of our preparation for ministry in our neighborhood. So whether or not we have hearts large enough, open enough, wide enough to embrace people who, like Paul or like Onesimus, would be regarded by the rest of the world as lower class, as less than, as undesirable. May they never be regarded that way by God's people who were lost and orphaned in sin, but loved by God anyway. May we love like Christ. And may we ask ourselves if we're prepared to extend that kind of love as a regular part of our witness in our neighborhood. If God loves and saves people from every tribe, nation, and language on the earth, how then should his people love? And I trust you see that this has practical importance for the kind of horrific things we saw in Charlottesville in the last week or two. I mean, this is what makes Charlottesville a horror in the eyes of the Christian is that we've been loved by God when we are so different from God. And there's been no barrier to his love. In fact, he has crossed those barriers to make us who were different and hostile to him, the Bible says, his family. And this is why no Christian can be a racist, could be a neo-Nazi, could be a supremacist, black, white, Hispanic, whatever, or a nationalist of the sort that trades in hatred and prejudice. Many of the people, you realize, marching in the name of the supremacy of their own race also claim to be representing Jesus Christ. They are deluded, beloved. They deceive themselves. For the people they reject in their hearts and their society, Jesus accepts in his heart and his kingdom. Having that hatred in their hearts, which the Bible refers to as murder, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. For no unrepentant murderer, no one who hates their brother, shall enter God's kingdom. The saddest people on the streets of Charlottesville were not the people run over by the car. It was the driver of the car and the people marching on the insignia that has stood for hate for generations. They are the most sad people, for they are the most deluded and the most lost in terms of understanding God's love. Beloved, there's a lot at stake in Charlottesville. Righteousness, equality, justice, truth, love of neighbor, and much more. It feels like our country is tottering off balance, trying to decide, who are we? The country may very well rip itself apart, arguing about who belongs to it, who is one of you, and who isn't. We have opportunity to speak into the national conversation, a word about natural citizenship, as well as a word about citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. But this is the other truth. Uh, Men may be barred from natural citizenship when accepted in that citizenship that lasts forever. Uh, Without a moral compass which has long been abandoned in far too much of our our country, it's time for Christians to shine, beloved. It's time that we bear witness to the love of God in Christ Jesus and we apply that truth of God's love in our conversations, in our relationships with, with people not like us. At people vulnerable in society. What well, we need are family ties that are stronger than American citizenship. We need ties that bind eternally. The love of God in Jesus Christ and our shared faith in Him as stronger than blood and land. It will last longer than blood and land. Through faith in Jesus. Beloved, we are family. Our tie is his blood and his cross and his resurrection and our hope in him of an eternal kingdom. And we're family not only because of our ties, but we're family because of our concern, our mutual concern. That's at least one thing every family wants when they're, when they're separated from other family members is the encouraging news about, about the other. And Christy and I just dropped Eden off at college yesterday. And we already want to know how she's doing. I found out Christy snuck and texted her last night. Got up out of bed about 4 o'clock in the morning. Leave that child alone. She at college. I texted her at an appropriate hour about 7.30. <laughs> you know the cliche. Absence makes the heart grow what? Fonder. That's true. But sometimes isn't it also the case that absence makes the heart grow anxious? Especially when there's no news. Especially when we understand that the loved one might be in some kind of trouble. That's what's happening between Paul and the Colossians. They they know that he's in prison, and they have some concern for him. And so Paul writes and and sends this letter in order to update them and to encourage them. Three times in these three verses, he states that goal. Look there in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. Also in verse 8, I've sent him for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And then in verse 9, referring to Tychicus and Onesimus, they will tell you everything that has taken place here. On the way to Colossae, Tychicus and Onesimus also stopped by the church in Ephesus. They would have had to go through Ephesus to get to Colossae. And Paul says a very similar thing in Ephesus 6, verses 21 and 22, that, that they have gone there too to make the church aware of what's happened with the apostles and to strengthen and encourage the church. The sending of news and updates was meant to strengthen the heart, was meant to demonstrate Paul's concern for the churches and to help the churches in their concern for Paul. It's that family concern that actually helped to bind them together as well. Love was expressing itself in genuine care for how well the other was doing. So Paul says, I want to encourage the hearts of the Colossians. Now think about that for a moment. He's in a first century jail. He's in a pit. At best, he's under house arrest in Rome. And while he's in prison, Who's he concerned about? The church. In fact, if you look back in Colossians 2, verses 1 and 2, he tells us that this is a regular burden for him. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. He's not even met these people before. He has this great burden that, notice there, that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love. And the Colossian church evidently felt the same way toward Paul. See, they have this family concern for one another, and there's something important to see here about this concern. It's selfless rather than selfish. I said a moment ago, Paul is in prison, but he's not concerned about himself. He's concerned about the churches. Though he's going to update the Colossians, and he writes to the Colossians, he doesn't write to them with a selfish, self-concerned, twisted perspective on himself. In other words, he doesn't write to them and say, you can't call nobody? Don't you, don't you care about me? I ain't putting nothing in the commissary. <laughs> Just bringing it up to date. Some of y'all know. Some of y'all that had that conversation with with relatives. Why haven't you visited me? Why haven't you hired a lawyer and pled my cause? He, He doesn't write like that, does he? Now, he would not have been wrong to desire their care and their comfort and their solidarity. In fact, in the letter to the Philippians, he praised them because they were the only church who had, in fact, given to his needs and and served him when when others hadn't. They had been empathetic with him in that way. But he's not writing selfishly. He's learned how to abound and he's learned how to be a base. He writes selflessly out of his care for them, even when he's the one in trouble so we can be so preoccupied with our pain and our rights that we fail to remember that others have pains and others have rights and if they're being too occupied with themselves while we are being too occupied with ourselves is there anybody left to care for anybody Verse 8 puts it, there must be an exchange. They learn of Paul's situation, and presumably they help, and they have their hearts encouraged by Tychicus. The church, like all families, must be a community wherein everyone's needs are met. And that only happens if we actually turn away from our needs to serve the needs of others. It's amazing how that happens, as each part supplies to the other, as we weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn notice we're turning out from ourselves to others and they are in turn turning toward us and in that way the love of god is spread through the whole body of christ matthew henry put it well referring to this passage and referring to paul he says circumstances of life make no difference in the spiritual relation among sincere christians they partake of the same privileges are entitled to the same regards. In other words, it's not our circumstances that entitle us to the care of other Christians. It's the fact that we are Christians that entitle us to the care of other Christians and entitle them to our care, no matter the circumstances. So let's go back to Charlottesville for a moment. Let me take us back there. There were a great many white people, Christian and non-Christian, Christian out there on the front lines with the, with the counter-protesters. counter-protesters. Just as in the civil rights movement and with abolitionism, white people, Christian and non-Christian, have been on the right side of history too, beloved. The one woman who lost her life, Heather Heyer, was white. She got it. Her last lines on her Facebook page were, if I got this correct, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. That's empathy. Empathy. Here's what I want to ask us as a family. Are we careful to ask how our white brothers and sisters are doing, even as we are in our fields, about things like Charlottesville? Are we empathetic, even as we are desiring empathy? Or are we sometimes too preoccupied with what we're feeling in our situation to stop for a moment, to consider the heart's of others, our Hispanic Hispanic brothers and sisters, sisters. our Asian Asian brothers and sisters, sisters. our African brothers and sisters, our immigrant brothers and and sisters. There's so much to feel about in the world, beloved. While we were concerned with Charlottesville, Sierra Leone was concerned with floods, taking hundreds of lives. I don't think we have biblical permission to be only concerned about ourselves. I think think we're called to have larger hearts, to be concerned about others as well, even the others we are in conflict with from time to time. Isn't that what love your enemies requires? So are we careful to ask how others are doing, even as we are in the midst of our own fields? If we're going to be family, We have to have a familial concern for all the members of the family. We have to show empathy, even as we're hoping for empathy. And let me tell you, if we're still in Charlottesville, let me tell you at least two reasons why this is important, thinking about the scenes of Charlottesville. Number one, it's important because we want joyful solidarity as the family of God, not guilt ridden compliance. We want joyful solidarity as the family of God. Not guilt-ridden, guilt-induced, coerced compliance. Why? Well, it's because joyful and free solidarity is what put Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner in Mississippi with James Chaney when they paid the ultimate cost of their life in Freedom Summer, registering black folks to vote and, register, and fighting for civil rights. That's what put Goodman and, Schwer- and Schwerner in Mississippi, Mississippi. not Not guilt, guilt, but joyful solidarity. And that's That's what what put Heather higher out there among the counter-protesters when she could have been home and and nobody would have noticed. Joyful solidarity. That's reason number one. Reason number two. It's because we we want want to to prevent the agents of hate from being able to recruit any more into their ranks. Let me try to unpack this a little bit. The agents of hate feed upon a twisted notion of one of you or one of us. The whole worldview is defined that way, in a sinful sort of notion of he's one of us, she's not. And, and, and based upon that notion of one of us, a sinful, prideful, supremacist notion of one of us, they also then feed upon feelings of being misunderstood of loss, feelings feelings of loss, feelings of of resentment, feelings of of displacement. displacement. They find people kind of unearthed in this world who've been battered a little bit and bruised a little bit and feel like they might be losing something in the culture. And Whether or not you think they're actually losing anything is beside the point. My point is they feel that way. And here's what the agents of hate say to folks like that. Your country is being taken over by people are not one of you. I'm one of you and I understand. I mean, how much is enough? Do we go on to take down statues of, of Washington as well? And what about Abraham Lincoln? Do we, do we erase all of our history? They're taking everything. And, and nowadays, you can't even have an opinion if you're a white man. Have you heard something like that? And some people who do feel lost and displaced and culturally under pressure. Which, by the way, is a pretty strong theme in evangelical circles. Have you noticed? The country's going to hell in a hands basket. Evangelicals are persecuted. They're taking this away, taking that away. They're not, exa- they're not the same thing, but they're, they're similar in their sort of emotional stream. Right? That becomes a pretty strong theme and a pretty strong chord to pull for so people who would twist that into hate, and twist that into things like racism, and so on. And when they, thinking themselves empathetic but differing, good people, get met with a lack of empathy and shut down, then the only people who seem to be listening to them are agents of hate. By our empathy, We want to give an alternative, a true Christian alternative. My brother or sister, if you're here and God has made you with white skin and identity, and maybe you do feel some resentment or loss or feel mistreated and misunderstood in these conversations, I want to offer you an alternative for learning how to deal with those feelings. It's not through the Klan and neo-Nazis that you learn how to deal, I want to suggest that you look to and learn from your black Christian brother and sister. That you look to the African American church which has had to deal with loss and mistreatment and resentment and bitterness and all the things you may feel, yet has managed to do it over its long history without resorting to hatred, without resorting to unforgiveness, without resorting to violent retaliation, but resorting to love. In God's providence, we have a model for how to deal with disenfranchisement and how to deal with mistreatment and how to deal with scorn right in the Christian family. If we remember that ours isn't the only church and other Christians have borne the brunt of these things and can teach us a great deal. Let us be the kind of community, the kind of congregation that can have the conversation So people aren't sort of forced out into the worldly wicked alternatives, but find the grace of God in the family of God as we share empathy with one another and as we learn and grow together. Enough about that. Point number three. We are family because of the ties that bind us, because of the concern that we have for each other, and number three, because of the family business because of the family business. Now in all of this, we must be about our father's business. I infer that from Tychicus, who is described as a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. You see that there in verse 7. Tychicus traveled extensively with Paul and for Paul. Titus chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says there that he may send Tychicus to Crete to relieve Titus And so Tychicus is one of those guys that could probably fill a a pulpit and preach and hold down the fort while another pastor gets rest. We we see that also in 2 Timothy 4.12, where he says there to Timothy that he's going to send Tychicus to uh, Ephesus, where Timothy is, so that Timothy can come be with Paul and bring Paul his books. This is free right here. It's always good to bring a pastor books, just saying. So Paul, Paul has this man, Tychicus, as a, as a fellow soldier in the work of the ministry. But here's the extraordinary thing about Tychicus' faithfulness. At least the extraordinary thing to me, what, what stands out to me with regard to the Colossian letter. He's taking this letter from Paul in Rome all the way to this church that Paul has never been to in Colossae. Now, that, that might, might not, not mean much to you if you're like me, if you're just, just geographically ignorant and you don't have a sense of, of, of what, what that means. Let, let me, that me read something from, from, from one of the commentaries, commentaries about this, this trip. So and it's, it's not, not, not the, the only, only one that he's made. made, made he's made a made number in his ministry, ministry with Paul. Here's what here's one, one commentator says. says to get from Rome to Colossae, he would first have to cross the Italian peninsula on foot. So he's got to walk across Italy, all right? then make the first of two sea crossings over the Adriatic Sea to Illyricum, which is modern-day Albania, right? This would be followed by another long slog on foot along the Ignatian Ignatian Way through Macedonia until he reached the port of Thessalonica on the Asian Sea. So then he's got to cross the Asian Sea, Right? And that would take him to Ephesus on the coast of Asia Minor. This man has walked and sailed from Italy to Asia. Alright? And when he gets to Ephesus, it's another 100 mile trip from Ephesus to Colossae by foot. Now y'all know some of us ain't that faithful. (laughs) Y'all know. Some of us ain't going that far. Much less if we got to walk, right? Dogs be hurting. (laughs) And then some of us ain't getting on no boats, right? You know, and um, the sickness, the robbers along the road, all the things he would have faced in this trip, where some of us would have been just thinking, man, it's just a letter. Tychicus was carrying in his hands the very word of God across sea through valley by foot to the people of God. And the letters of Ephesus and Colossians and Philemon we had because this brother took that walk and that boat ride. And 2,000 years later, your soul and my soul is blessed with the picture of Jesus and our union with him because this man was a faithful brother, a faithful minister, and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are recipients of Tychicus' faithfulness, of his service to the Lord. And the church on every continent and in every era has been blessed Because this man went where he was asked to go, when he was asked to go, to do what he was asked to do. Faithfulness always bears fruit, beloved, and it often bears fruit beyond our lifetimes, as was the case with this brother. Beloved, how wonderful it would be if we were remembered by those who came after us as beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. How wonderful it would be if when Christ returns, he finds us about the Father's business, spreading the gospel, making disciples, and loving the Christian family. How wonderful it would be when Christ returns, he would find us crossing over mountains, sailing across seas, walking through deserts, living in hamlets, all to make Jesus known. No matter what goes on in the world from Charlottesville to Sierra Leone and and what part we may or may not have in it, we are called to the family business of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, of making him known and spreading that news to every creature, of letting the world know that God has a son that was crucified in our place to atone for our sins. And God in his love for his son and for us raised that son from the dead to prove that he had accepted his sacrifice. And God, because of his love for his son and for us, has done it in such a way that everyone who believes in Jesus is united to Jesus and lives forever with him as his own adopted family. That's our business. That's why God has left us in the world, to make that known to every creature and to tell every creature, come get some of this. Come get in on God's love. Come Come believe believe in his His son and and be forgiven forgiven of your your sins and and saved for eternal life and adopted into God's family. We are the family, and that is the business. And that's why we rejoice to see Jeremy and the team go to Northeast D.C. with the gospel and plant a church. They are family taking care of our father's business, and that's why some of you should go with them. And that's why Dennis and Jahil are leading evangelism teams in the neighborhoods on the on the weekends, a couple weekends a month, knocking on doors, praying with cats on the block. Let them know we're here about our Father's business. We we'll tell you about Jesus, and that's why Matt and I will go to the UK in a couple of months to to.